Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse in theaters now. Go see it! Plus some MCU Spidey spoilers. Hello! My name is Jason Concepcion. And I'm Rosie Knight. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Media Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode... On the airlock, it's a spider bag. A spider mail bag. <laughs> bag him and tag him, the bombastic bag men. We're here. We're here to answer your spider questions. Omnibus. Jason's doing a delightful deep dive discussing Spider-Man 2099. And in the hive mind, it's an interview with Nikesh Shukla, the writer on the new Spider-Man India comic. So if you're a fan of Pav in Across the Spider-Verse, make sure to listen to that one. Coming up, your questions. Rosie, do you feel that? It's our spider senses tingling and we're stepping out of the airlock to some very, very dangerous Spider-Man-themed mailbag questions straight from the nefarious laboratories of Alchemax. Question one from Dewan. What's your favorite oh shit or well damn Peter Parker Spider-Man comic moment? One of mine is when May was shot and Peter rolled into jail and humiliated the kingpin. Oh, wow, that's good. What's yours? (laughs) Mine is probably, this is like, less of Peter being a badass because that's not really how I see him, but it yeah. did make me say, oh shit, is when Peter is really broke, so he tries to join the Fantastic Four because he wants to get a paycheck. That's like one of the funniest Peter Parker moments in comics, in my opinion, and I think about it a lot. Okay, so my original answer, this is the real answer and it's not that cool, but it's the answer that like 12-year-old me would give. And that is black suit, Peter Parker, Spider-Man crawling out of the grave in Craven's Last Hunt. Now, Craven's Last Hunt, incredible art by Mike Zeck. Does the story hold up? I would say kind of not really. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite Spider-Man story. But at the time, everything about it just floored me, including that like iconic cover where, you know, Craven is like searching throughout his hunting lodge, you know, for Spider-Man. And Spider-Man's, like, in the ceiling rafters, like, looking down at him. Like, I remember looking at that on the spinner rack and being like, holy shit, I gotta get that. Yeah, that's definitely one of those most influential story arcs. I think even, like you said, no matter how it holds up, I think a lot of us, like, that was a Spider-Man story that we always remember. Yeah, and then this is gonna be a unoriginal answer, but it's, you know, this early Steve Ditko They've retconned this moment so many times, both in shows and in other iterations of Spider-Man comics. But it's that moment where he doesn't really know how strong he is yet early in the days of Spider-Man, right? This weight of like all this like rubble and stuff has collapsed and it's fallen down on him, right? Oh, yeah. That's such a great panel. You see this moment in the Spider-Man movie. You see it in other things. 
and water is filling up the space and like the concrete is crushing him and it's like pushing him down and he doesn't know if he's going to make it. And he's thinking, oh God, I'm, I just might give up. I can't do it. And then he finds the strength somewhere inside of himself to be like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to escape. I'm going to push all this stuff off me. And that is just such an iconic Spider-Man moment because Peter Parker figured it out on his own. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the X-Men all have a school. Tony has billions of dollars. Tony has billions of dollars. They all do regular training at the mansion. Like Daredevil got ninja training and boxing training from his dad. Mm -hmm. Peter Parker had none of that shit. He did like one amateur wrestling match and then was a superhero. <laughs> so this is him really understanding how strong he is for the first time and letting loose. Yeah. And it's just an iconic Spider-Man moment that has been recreated again and again and again. Yeah. And that panel is like still just as powerful every time you see it. Yeah. Just to add to this, in case you didn't know about this ridiculous, after Jason gave that incredibly good, sincere, coherent answer, here is more of my chaotic facts about why this works. Sure. So it happened in the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Peter goes to try and join this Fantastic Four because he needs a paycheck, right? And they say no. But the issue I was actually thinking of is, number one, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, where they say yes. And because of this... Because they let him into the group, because he is broke, Sue ends up leaving Reed to go and be with the Submariner Namor and ends up like dating him and finding solace in his arms <laughs> because she gets left behind in favor of Peter. So that is another oh shit moment. Peter joining the Fantastic Four because he's broke leads to Sue cheating on Reed. Just iconic stuff. I love that weird shit. And for me, Spider-Man, I'm always just here to laugh about how he's broke. But yeah, those two moments are really great, Jason. Joshua asks, lots of discourse on how people are divided on how they feel about how most of the spider force in Across the Spider-Verse react to the canon events and accepting that they need to happen. Would love to hear Jason and Rosie's thoughts on this. Is it acceptable or out of characters for the spiders or do we just chalk it up to the writers poking fun at how the comics editor's office won't seem to let Peter grow? I think what makes that movie so good is that everybody has a point. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a great, great conflict. Like, I think we all would disagree with Miguel, Spider-Man 2099's tactics. Yeah. But I think it's also fair to say that keeping to the canon in a multiversal sense has kept a lot of bad slash chaotic time stream events from happening. Like he's, mm -hmm. I think, also clearly held the universe together. And to speak more to that, the spider force, the spider society, all of these spider people that, that are helping Miguel, they are all the heroes of their dimension. Mm -hmm. And they look at Miguel and go, this guy's right. Yeah. So clearly there is something there that is worth doing. And what's so perfect about the conflict is that from Miles's perspective, now knowing what the outcome is going to be, that's the thing that flips it. Mm hmm. If you knew Uncle Ben or police captain close to Spider-Man was going to die, you know, much like Uncle Ben's words, you know, then you have the responsibility to do something about it. Mm -hmm. But looking from the, you know, multiversal 50,000 foot view where the hero doesn't know and the spider society do know and you're just letting events take their course. Yeah. I think they have a point as well. So 
I think that's why it's a great story is because you can see that both sides have an authentic perspective. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I think the other thing about it is it plays into that ultimate moral ethical question, which is like the good of the many versus the good of the few. Yeah. Like if you could save the life of your loved one, but it would kill an entire universe, what would you do? And that is the position that Miguel puts people in with the binary choice he's asking them to make. I also think Joshua makes a great point here where he says the thing about the writers kind of poking fun at how comics editors won't let Peter grow. You know, things like Peter can't stay married, but he can't get divorced. So he has to make a deal with Mephisto. I think that Josh makes a great point. I don't necessarily know if it's poking fun at. I think it is done in a tongue in cheek way. But I do think, as Kemp Powers said on our show, I do think that it is a acknowledgement of how canon can force writers and creatives and characters to be put through the same kind of stories again and again and again you know we did a chat with uh, Nikesh yeah talking about how the original Spider-Man India was basically them redoing the Uncle Ben origin story but in India with this new character Pav and that's really interesting because again somebody else has to die somebody else has to die so I think it's a really smart cool way of building in a conversation with your audience as well as a interesting conflict that we're going to have conversations about this for years because it does play into these big moral and ethical questions about being a hero and what that really means. Nobody can say Miles is wrong, but you also can't say that the Spider Society doesn't have a point when you see yeah. what happens in Pav's universe where this you know black hole into the multiverse opens up. Nobody can say that. Jack W. asks, which Disney MCU character do you think will next appear in Tom Holland's live-action Spider-Man movies? I think Spider-Man 4 could be more street-based, and since they teased Daredevil's run in No Way Home, it seems like the obvious choice. Any dark horses on your minds? Rosie, any thoughts? I think Jack is absolutely right, and I think Nikesh in our conversation is absolutely right. It's going to be more of a street-level OG experience Spider-Man. Yeah, I totally agree. My gut says, look, this isn't fully MCU, but I also think we could see Miles. That's always been my thought about Spider-Man 4. You set it up so you have Peter as a street-level hero. Spider-Man gains more of that reputation. And near the end, you meet Miles and you set it up so that rather than Peter being dead, people just don't know Peter ever existed. And then you can have that mentorship. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a little Miles cameo, a live action Miles cameo. But I think you're right. I think any Daredevil characters are up for play. I think that we could see someone like Kate Bishop Hawkeye. I feel like that is a very natural space. Oh, that would be cool. And she didn't know Peter Parker before. So you can also establish a world where she does know him. Does the spell keep going though? Mm. Does anytime anyone learns that he's Peter Parker, they forget? I don't know if it's like an ongoing, like invisible life of Addie LaRue type spell, but I think a Kate Bishop Hawkeye, someone young and fun could be like that. Kamala and Peter, that could be really great. Oh, that's a good one. I would like to see it. Also, we know that they like to take things from Miles' comic and kind of transplant them onto Tom Holland and Miles and Kamala have an ongoing friendship. So those would be the ones. I think that street level vibe with maybe a few young kids. And let's be real. I mean, Kamala's only a, like, she's not very far from New York City. So that to me really seems like the, the most obvious choice. What about you? Gosh, taking a cue from you... I think it would make a lot of sense to see the Kingpin. Oh, God, I'd love to see it. Kind of an examination of the underlying organized crime forces in New York City. I know that, uh, you know, Born Again is probably going to delve into that greatly, but we haven't really seen anything like that on the big screen. It's been kind of, you know, much, much larger scale threats than that. 
Venom has been teased. So what about some sort of symbiote battle? Oh, I think you're right. I think the symbiote suit could be a big call for Thor. Yeah, what if the symbiote crawls over some big muscle-bound guy who already has a problem with Peter Parker, and now all of a sudden you've got a built-in antagonist? And then we've done the Green Goblin. What about the Hobgoblin? Mm-hmm. What about the Hob? I just want to say, I've talked about this a lot, yeah, but, you know, there is a version of the world where a certain Ned Leeds... That's what I'm saying. ...is the Hobgoblin. I would love to see it. I've talked to Jacob Alan about that before he plays Ned. I've said, like, is that something you would want to do? Imagine that friendship and torn apart. You know, Spider-Man 3 style, the emotion. That would be extremely cool. Okay, what about this? What do you think... The reality, you know, something I loved about She-Hulk and that I loved about Hawkeye was that they reintroduced the Daredevil characters in like a slightly new tone. Yeah. Do you imagine a world where we could see the MCU Netflix Punisher join the MCU again, but in Spider-Man? I think we could see it. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, for one, the character has been through no fault of anyone's, politicized by the fact that the Thin Blue Line movement has co-opted the Punisher skull as like one of their pieces of iconography. I feel like this iteration of Disney or really any iteration of Disney would be like, we don't need it. It's not like he's a major. Well, I mean, the people that like the Punisher, it's like a religion. Yeah, it's like licorice, you know, like not a lot of people like the Punisher, but those who like it, like really, really like it. And so I think that there's a way to do it. You make him more of like a special forces guy and maybe not so much like a vigilante who just like guns people down. And they've done that in the comics a little bit. X did that and Civil War did that where it's like the Punisher was involved and all the heroes were like, this guy's working with us. This guy's like a fucking mass murderer. But the stuff that he did was kind of like splinter cell type mm. activities where he's like sneaking into the Baxter building and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a world in which they could do it, but I think they would have to necessarily tone it down. There's a guy in a country racked by gun violence. Mm -hmm. Here is a guy who unapologetically just like guns mafia dudes down in their hundreds like all the time yeah i actually just saw so john bernthal is coming back in daredevil born again so that could be our place where they reimagine him because i feel like if you're gonna put him back into the mcu the version they did in the marvel netflix show was so dark it was incredibly dark. You're going to have to put him in a spandex costume and have him with like a paintball gun. Like you're really going to have to go the other way with it. And I will say, I kind of liked it. I get why they did it, but it doesn't fit into the Spider-Man of it all. That said, I think that there is a way because, you know, again, like Marvel Comics is, is made up of characters with different tones. Like oftentimes when Frank Castle gets in a room with Spider-Man or whoever, they're just roasting the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that there is a world where he becomes, while still a very, very dangerous individual, the butt of a lot of jokes. Oh, that could be fun. I think that that is a really fun, interesting way to do it. You make him the butt of the jokes and you take away the seriousness that he's been afforded by certain groups. I think that could be very good. Chauncey asks, it's controversial, but I like it. Which was the better series? 90s X-Men animated series or 90s Spider-Man animated series? I mean, listen, they're both really, really good, but the 90s X-Men was iconic. And part of it is that it had a great theme song. It was taking incredible, already legendary 
arcs from the X-Men comics and like boiling them down into really, really punchy half hour animated episodes. And it had so much more interpersonal drama because you have this big team of heroes. It was just better. Mm -hmm. And this is no shots to anybody who likes the animated Spider-Man. Because we're fair and balanced here. I'm going to make the argument for the 90s Spider-Man. I agree with everything you just said. I do believe that the X-Men cartoon is iconic. I love the way that it takes those iconic classic arcs and truncates them and makes them accessible. I will say, I do rewatch the Spider-Man show more and it is because of that same device that they use. You can watch that Spider-Man show and you can find out the origin of any supervillain. You want to find out what happened to Venom? You can watch that story on there. You want to see this character? You can do it. In the tradition of Spider-Man as well, there are so many good villains in that show. Like every out there weird villain is around. So I will say that's the underrated gem. But obviously X-Men 92, everybody knows it. There's a reason it's getting a sequel. That shit's iconic. But Spider-Man, I'm glad you brought up Chauncey because I don't think it gets the love it deserves. Should we do a rewatch of the original uh, 90s X-Men animated series in preparation for the upcoming X-Men animated series on Disney Plus? Oh my God, yes. And let's do Pride of the X-Men 2, you know, the one they made before. Yeah, yeah, that's a good Because that's like that shit. I will tell you the real truth. When you watch that, you got to watch it after you watch 92 because 92 doesn't hold up to Pride. Oh, wow. Pride is actually like, you want to see that story. You want to see that story. Okay. Yeah, it's so good. Ian asks, is the real hidden theme of our film that actual reality sucks ass because there's no spider person in it? I think that might be, to make it serious for a second, I think that part of the theme is that our reality actually sucks ass because they're, you know, what are these stories, generally speaking? They are like incredible wish fulfillment where we want to live in a world in which people with tremendous power and tremendous resources who are geniuses and are rich and are incredibly talented and powerful don't just like sit up in their skyscraper penthouses and like accrue capital mm -hmm. and like build bunkers on islands off the coast of New Zealand waiting for the apocalypse. They go out and they try and save the world. We want that to be the case. It's clearly not the case in our world, but we want it to be. That's why these stories have so much staying power. That's why people still engage with them. That's why kids and adults and everybody are in a comic store anytime you walk in there. So yeah, I think that you're right, Ian. In a certain kind of sense, you're correct. Nothing more to add. That was perfect. I totally agree. Up next, return to the Omnibus to discuss Spider-Man 2099. We've got exciting news. X-Ray Vision will be recording our 15th anniversary of the Dark Knight retrospective episode live in Los Angeles on June 26th at 7pm PT. Join us in person or via live stream from the comfort of your home. Tickets and more info available at crooked.com slash events. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to another chapter in the Omnibus, where lore, analysis, and understanding come together. This week, Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. Reboots and retcons are, of course, a necessary part of serialized storytelling. That's particularly true in comics, right, where you're trying to continuously engage a new audience, a new person whose next comic is their first comic. And we've talked a lot about the Marvel's Ultimate Universe the 2000s-era line of books featuring Marvel's most popular heroes in a modern setting. Miles Morales, of course, makes his first appearance in 2011's Ultimate Universe number 4, an offshoot of Marvel's Ultimate Spider-Man. The Ultimate Universe has been incredibly influential to all of the MCU properties. Fallout explored the repercussions of the shocking, tragic, and incredibly sorrow-filled death of Peter Parker in the pages of Ultimate Spider-Man. I won't spoil how. And there's a long, long runway to get to that moment, but it's an incredible moment in comic storytelling. And it also acts, Fallout does, as a kind of like soft reboot itself, like a reboot of a retcon, essentially, of the Ultimate Universe. But before Ultimate Marvel, way back in the 90s, there was Marvel 2099. The 2099 initiative, if we can call it that, launched with four titles in the year of our Lord, 1992. Ravage 2099. Ravage was a new superhero, and really the marketing behind Ravage was that, hey, Stanley's got a new superhero, kids, and it's Ravage. You're going to love it. The year's 2099, here's Ravage. Stanley Excelsior. Do you know anything about Ravage? No, because nobody cares about Ravage anymore. This is also like they tried this in like, I want to say 86 with Speedball and a bunch of new heroes too. With Oh, Stanley's back with a new hero. He's Speedball. He bounces around like a Speedball. Doom 2099. Victor Von Doom in the year 2099. Punisher 2099, because if there's one thing that's for sure, now and 100 years in the future, there's going to be dudes killing dudes with guns. And of course, Spider-Man 2099. Spider-Man 2099 is the only one of those original four offerings that has any kind of staying power. It has a real fan base of its own now. The tone, as you can kind of guess just by the selection here, was very, very 90s kind of proto-90s to what it became. This is pre-all the pockets and all the belts and guns and stuff, but the weird hairstyles were there and the violent grittiness, which had kind of been developing over the course of the mid-80s into the 90s with the offerings of Frank Miller and others, was uh, here to see. Now, the 2099 line didn't run all that long, like six years and change, seven years-ish, but... It acted as a launch pad for Miguel O'Hara, a.k.a. Spider-Man 2099, who, as we have seen from across the Spider-Verse and in other comics, uh, recent comic offerings, continues to be a character who is engaged with the stuff that's going on in the story today and is a really fun character to explore. So how did uh, Miguel O'Hara get the spider powers? Well, created by uh, legends, Peter David and Ricky Leonardi, Miguel's origin is kind of the most original non-clone Spider-Man origin. 
the rest of them are, you know, Miles got his powers in a very similar way to Peter Parker and the rest of the Spider Society, same thing. They got bit by the radioactive spider. Some of them are just straight off clones of, of Peter Parker. Not so with Miguel. Miguel is a, in the year 2099, is a brilliant genetic researcher. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And, uh, you know, where do you work if you're a brilliant genetic researcher? You work for the evil corporation Alchemax, because I guess there's no other places that he could have possibly worked. But he decided to work at Alchemax. And his work involved, uh, you know, working on DNA, altering DNA, splicing different DNAs together to create hybrids. One inspiration of Miguel's is a mysterious figure from the heroic age, a.k.a. the late 20th century, Spider-Man. Just imagine he's telling his supervisor, Aaron, think of what we could do with the proportional powers of a spider. This guy would be, quote, an ideal corporate raider, meaning like he could like climb into our competitors' buildings and steal files and stuff. So maybe Miguel is actually like at the right place, the exact right company for him to work at. Miguel is excited about his work, but he's getting a lot of pressure from Aaron, his supervisor, and from CEO Tyler Stone, who really want him to hurry up. We got to start human trials already with this research. And Miguel's like, no, it's too early. We're not ready to do human research. We can't go to human testing yet. And they're like, wrong. I'm the CEO of this company, Tyler Stone. And uh, guess what? I already got a guy. His name is Sims. He is a prisoner. And in exchange for commuting his sentence, which I have somehow bargained for with, I don't know, the Justice Department or somebody because I'm a fucking billionaire, I've made them agree that they will shorten his sentence if he will undergo your gene splicing process. Miguel is like, fuck, okay, we'll do it. So they put him, you know, in the machinery and they splice him up in real time with the genes and what bursts forth from the uh, mechanized sarcophagus thingy is just like this melted horror. This origin story is clearly influenced by David Cronenberg's The Fly, by Blade Runner, all these kind of dark and mysterious and shadowy and somewhat discomfitting like dystopian futuristic stories, right? And Sims grabs Miguel around the neck after breaking his bonds and bursting out of the machinery. And before he can do too much damage, he just fucking drops dead because the process was extremely destructive to his body on a cellular level. And Aaron and CEO Stone are like, fuck, yeah, that was fucking great. Look at that. He broke out of all that metal and stone. He was tied down. And this is awesome. And Michael's like, what are you talking about? This guy fucking died right away. It's like, yeah, but like in the five seconds before he died, he was super strong. This is great. Let's keep going. And Miguel is like, no, I quit. He goes to the CEO's office like, fuck this. I'm out. We just killed a guy. Like, I can't. This is fucked up. Stone's like. I get it. You have a backbone. You have a moral compass. That's great. Here's a glass of wine. Have this glass of wine. It's not weird at all that we just watched a guy die. And now I'm offering you a glass. of Just drink the wine. <laughs> because like, all right. And so Miguel uh, drinks the wine and immediately starts tripping balls. And that's because CEO Tyler Stone has slipped Rapture, a instantly addictive hallucinogen <laughs> into Miguel's wine. And why? Why would CEO Tyler Stone do this? Here's the reason. Now you're fucking addicted to drugs and you're going to need more. And guess who makes Rapture? Alchemex. Why do they make this drug? No one fucking knows. It's like the Sacklers. 
only if there was no medical use for this fucking drug. So Alchemex is the only people, that, the only corporation that makes this incredibly addictive fucking street hallucinogen. And now Miguel is addicted to it. And if you want more, what do you have to do? You have to clock in and come back to work, motherfucker. So Miguel goes home tripping, immediately attacks his girlfriend because he's hallucinating. And then he, he kind of wears off a little bit and he's, what am I going to do? He tells his girlfriend everything. And in desperation, he figures, okay, I'm going to sneak back into my lab. I'm going to put myself in the machinery, the other machinery that's not destroyed, right? I'm going to splice my own clean DNA that I have like in a computer bank somewhere into my currently addicted to rapture DNA. And I'm going to like cleanse myself. I'm going to replace all my DNA and cells with original clean Miguel cells. It's fucking brilliant. He goes in there. He's doing it. Well, guess who's working late tonight? Aaron, the supervisor. Aaron walks in and sees Miguel in the machine and is like, oh, <laughs> you don't want to fucking push the human trials. You're trying to quit and all this stuff. I'm going to kill you. Now, would Aaron do this if he understood that the CEO himself had just addicted Miguel to drugs in order to keep him working? He probably would not have done this. But he decided he sabotages the machinery. And just like because Miguel had earlier said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we like spliced someone with a spider? Wouldn't that be cool? He is like, watch this. I'm going to splice you with a spider. And he pulls up spider file on the computer. The machinery goes haywire and fucking explodes. But Miguel is like emerges like shaken, but he comes out of it. And Aaron's like, holy shit, you survived. Not only did he survive, he's got like white eyes. He's super strong. He's got like fucking claws in his hands and his feet. And he looks like a vampire with fangs and stuff. He tries to save Aaron's life, who almost like falls out of the building. That goes sideways. An Alchemex SWAT team arrives. Miguel is like, this is too crazy. I'm going to end it all. He jumps out of the building. As he's falling to his death, he's like, wait, wait, I don't want to die, actually. And he reaches out and he grabs onto the side of the building. And with his claws, this is how Spider-Man 2099 climbs walls. His talons in his hands and feet just go sink right into the concrete and steel, and he's able to scale the side of the building. Now, superheroes from the heroic age in the 2099 universe had taken on kind of like a cult-like mythology. There were people who were followers of all the Avengers and the Asgardians. A Thorite, who's basically a, worships Thor as like a cult figure, is flying random shit that happens in comics, is flying a hang glider <laughs> across New York City dressed as Thor, doing Thor stuff, when Miguel comes flying off the side of the building and jumps onto the paraglider, and they crash. But the Thorite actually gives Miguel a good bit of advice where he says, listen, Spider-Man, you have to put on a mask. Spider-Man is back. Spider-Man was an ally of Thor, who I worship as a cult-like figure. And you have to put on a mask now because that's what Spider-Man did. You have to hide your identity. And Miguel's like, that's actually, that's a good idea. So- Stone then gets wind of Miguel's transformation. He hires like the cyborg to hunt him down. By that time, Miguel has obtained a costume, the costume that we see in the movie, that kind of very, very 90s, slightly techno kind of grungy webbed under the arms costume. And this, you would think, did Miguel make this out of unstable molecules? He does talk about, oh, I need unstable molecules now with my claws and stuff. No, this is a Day of the Dead costume that he had just like in his closet somewhere. I guess they do Day of the Dead differently in 2099. And from there, Miguel, of course, defeats the cyborg with the help of the Asgardian cult followers, including the original Thorite. And the legend of Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099 is born. He is a spider, but a lot of the weird parts of his power set, the fangs, the claws, etc., probably come from 
the interaction of the spider DNA plus the crazy, crazy rapture drug that was like circling around in his bloodstream. That, folks, is Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. Up next, Hive Mind with Spider-Man India writer Nikesh Shukla. Welcome to Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with an expert guest. This episode, we're thrilled to welcome Nikesh Shukla, the writer of the brand new Spider-Man India series from Marvel Comic, and my friend. Nikesh, thank you for joining us for Vision. Thank you, Nikesh. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Hi, Rosie. Hi. So happy that you're here, my friend. Before we get into the Spider-Man of it all, how do you all know each other? Well, there was like a moment in the London poetry scene where you'd go to gigs and you'd have me and Rosie and amazing people like Moose Rock Wonga and Shimen Suleiman. Oh, wow. We'd also have Ed Sheeran and Sabrina Mafus and <laughs> Riz Ahmed. Yeah. <laughs> there were other people who, who ended up being massive as well. Warsan, I think, was around at the time as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we just became firm friends being the only two people who liked comic books basically yeah <laughs> and meant it yeah because we actually went to the comic book shop and bought comic books and now we're here what a journey <laughs> and now we're here yeah have you seen spider-verse i have your thoughts on spider-man india my global thoughts on spider-verse is going into it into the Spider-Verse is a top 10 movie for me of all time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No question. So you're already going in going, the bar is very, very high. Yes. And I fucking loved it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved it. I. It's unbelievable. Two hours, 20 minutes went by very quickly. I even sat through the credits when they flipped from the good credits to the weird the screen is slightly broken and you've got that purple hue <laughs> credits. I just thought it was brilliant. Spider-Man India was a lot of fun. Spider-Punk was awesome. When Daniel Kaluuya shouted, man like Miles, I wanted to jump up in my seat and go, "Yeah, yes, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I screamed. It, it was so perfect. Okay, let's talk more about, before we get to you writing Spider-Man India and stuff, what's your origin story with comics? Like with Spider-Man in particular and comics, which I know for you is like really intertwined. Yeah. So when I was six years old, I went to India for an extended period of time. And my cousins, who are all a lot older than me, they were all reading Archie comics. And they all felt that a six-year-old probably didn't need to learn about jalopies and double dates and, and all the rest of it. <laughs> Probably too young to understand, you know, weird innuendos about making out and stuff. So they bought me a Spider-Man comic and a Batman comic. And that Spider-Man comic was just the one that I reread and reread and reread for the entire time I was there. I just absolutely fell in love with that comic. So weirdly, my comics journey started in India. And then in the mid 90s, me and my best friend Junaid, we used to go to the comic shop every week and we would sit at the back of the comic shop and read all of the comics for free. And then whatever little money we had, we would buy all those number ones, all those, you know, it was the mid 90s, so all those foil variant covers. <laughs> and we were like, this is it. This is how we're going to make our fortune. We're going to buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is how we'll make our fortune. And we never did. <laughs> 
And then years later, when I thought I was the only person left in my friendship group reading comic books, I started going to Orbital Comics in London, which Rosie was later worked out when they moved locations. I did. But when it was in the original top of Tottenham Court Road location. Basement. Yeah, in the basement. It was me and Inua Ellums, the poet. We used to sit in there and read comics at the back. Turns out, 20 years after the fact, I was still a cheapskate. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking of those foil variant years and the collectible comic and the bag, did you ever come up with, this is my problem, did you ever come up with a solution to getting the comic home without bending the pages? This was the issue I had. Mm. Coming from the shop with the super collectible comic, I thought that I had saved all my money for. It's in the bag. It's got the little extra cheat. It's got the little sticker pack. It's got the foil thing. But how do you get it home on a bicycle in a backpack without bending the corners? How do you do it? How did you do it? Jason, please don't make me tell this story because I'm going to lose so many (laughs) cool credits. Oh my gosh, please tell us. Now you have to tell us. We had a briefcase. That's cool. That's a good idea. That's like you're in Pulp Fiction, like the gold is glowing (laughs) when you put the hologram covers in there. No, you're putting 2023 nostalgia onto the (laughs) 80s briefcase that I was still using in the early 90s. In the early 90s, that made me a prick. (laughs) And in the mid 90s, when all this was happening, it made me somewhat of an oddball. Mm. <laughs> but me, me and Janaid, we'd have the briefcase. It had all of the comics in the main cabin. Yeah. I don't know what. The compartment. Main compartment. <laughs> the first class yeah. comic book cabin in the suitcase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because we were teenage boys, you lifted up the compartment for the secret compartment, and there were some naughty magazines. <laughs> That was the most important briefcase in the world. Yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't think my dad is going to listen to this podcast. Sorry, guys. I don't think he listens to X-ray Vision. It's all right. Heartbroken. So I feel like I can get away with confessing that. Wow. Who could have ever known that it would have been such a good, unique story? Yeah. So sticking to that 90s kind of like, because we don't really get to talk about these crazy speculation boom times. Do you remember like this single comic that you bought where you were like, this is the one? Like I remember getting Spawn number one. Like when I got a copy of that, I was like, I'm going to be rich. (laughs) I didn't know they printed like 5 million copies of it. (laughs) It was a comic called Legionnaires. Oh, yeah. I don't think it lasted more than 10 issues. (laughs) And then we upsold that so we could buy Profit issue four, which had the misprint in it. And that was the one where we were like, this is the one, guys. This is the one. (laughs) We lived in a pre-eBay world. What we were going to do, just... um, Mm -hmm. I was going to say the end of that story. And then I was like, dude, you already told them about the briefcase. (laughs) You were like, the briefcase has already come up, guys. Don't tell them that you kept meaning to go to the various cons and sell Profit Issue 4, but you couldn't afford the train fare. (laughs) That's relatable. Much like Spider-Man, he was always broke. Mm -hmm. I never even went to a proper comic book convention until I moved to America. They have an English comic convention, MCM, but I went there like once or twice and it was mostly just like because I could get there on the tube. The ones we went to, it was basically a bunch of people like us trying to sell things, trying to buy their house and (laughs) no one buying (laughs) because we just didn't realize that all of those comics were in abundance at the time. So how did you find yourself writing Spider-Man? Because of the wonderful Jamie McKelvey, basically. Icon. On Twitter for years, I would just try and manifest that I wanted to write a Spider-Man because like 
I've had a long and varied career writing novels, working on TV shows and stuff. And I feel like I've done everything that I wanted to do. And then a couple of years ago, I turned down a major award in the UK called an MBE because it stands for Member of the British Empire. And I was like, I don't really want those letters after my name. And so when I did that, I kind of felt like maybe I should try and do something for myself. So one day I just wrote on Twitter, one day I want to write a Spider-Man comic. I still filed it as, you know, when you're a kid and you're like, I want to be a fireman. I want to I want to be a traffic warden. I want to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. I want to write comic books. It still felt like one of those careers. <laughs> And Jamie McKelvey, I think he still follows me. Yeah, he follows me on Twitter. (laughs) What a way to find out. (laughs) Yeah, Jamie just DM'd me and said, do you want me to introduce you to some people at Marvel if you're serious? And I was like, yeah, I'm serious. Sure. In that way that like someone has just gone, oh, you know that pipe dream you have? I can definitely make it a reality if you want. And then you suddenly freak out because you're Mm -hmm. like, oh God, I've actually got to try and do this properly. So Jamie put me in touch with the people at Marvel It was the pandemic times, so you know, they were busy trying to get comic books out and they had I was one of probably many people going, Hey, can I write a Spider Man comic? And I was starting to feel like maybe I should just pitch them something properly rather than just going, Hey, can we have a chat and we can fling some ideas around? Let me just go in with a pitch. And around the time I had that realization, that first teaser trailer for Across the Spider Verse came out and I was talking to Rosie about it. I think you guys even discussed it on the podcast at the time. But there's a moment where it kind of, you hear a tabla on it. And I thought, oh, I wonder if Pavito Prabhaka is going to be in this. That would be pretty cool. And then I thought, why has there not been another miniseries since the original one that came out in 2005? He's such a fun character. And actually, whenever he's cropped up, in all the Spider-Versal adventures. He's always sort of in the background. He gets a cool action shot, maybe a couple of quips, but we don't really actually know much about him. They haven't explored enough about him. Fuck it, I'm going to pitch Spider-Man India. So I wrote them an idea, sent it through, and they came back and said, you know what, funnily enough, we were thinking about doing another miniseries, and I don't know if you know this, but he's going to be in the next Across the Spider-Verse. And so that's, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. Yeah, I got to write a new Spider-Man and I got to like put my own stamp on it, which was the fun thing because there wasn't much about Bavito that was sort of canon. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen the movie and read the script or anything. So I got to just do what I wanted to do, which was great. So like for people who haven't read that 2005 miniseries, which I'm sure has been reprinted and is probably available to buy seeing as the movie is out. Who is Pav? Like what's the story of Spider-Man India? Correct me if I'm wrong, Rosie. I'm sure you will. Uh, (laughs) He was one of the first sort of multiversal spiders to exist. I mean, it wasn't sort of clarified until later on that he was what Earth he was in. Yeah. But that first four issue arc is very much like a retelling of the Spider-Man origin story with the death of Uncle Ben, Uncle Bim in this case, and the introduction of like an Indian demon who is the Green Goblin and a Doctor Octopus type villain. Yeah, it's pretty much an origin story. That's pretty much it. And it's fun and it's interesting, like recontextualizing Spider-Man and that iconic sort of New York skyline to somewhere like Bombay, which is, you know, the skyline is very, was very different in 2005. And in 2023, it's even more different because, you know, there are so many more high rises now. They were springing up then. So yeah, that was pretty much it. It was very much like a retelling of the origin story and sort of remixing it with sort of Indian mysticism and bits of Hinduism and just imbuing it with like, Spider-Man isn't bitten by radioactive spider. He's sort of chosen and given this sort of mystical power. 
I was uh, reading through a bunch of your interviews and there's a quote in one of them that jumped out at me. You said, you know, telling, I think, the story that you told us about your comics origin story, that reading Spider-Man made you feel less alone. Could you explain that? Yeah, like the character of Peter Parker and to an extent Miles Morales, they're both such brilliant teenagers. They've got the weight of the world on their shoulders. They've got everything against them. They are so racked with guilt and shame, which as the child of immigrant parents, I grew up racked with guilt and shame all the time. And so whenever I read those comics, I just felt like this superhero kid got me because he put on a mask to become his cocky, most powerful best. And so there was always this interesting thing of like, who is the real person? Spider-Man or Peter Parker? You know, that whole thing that's explored in issue 31, the sort of the duality of the selves. And it just really resonated with me. I think it's really hard to nail writing teenagers Mm -hmm. and writing teenagers who feel like the world is against them, but also make them fun. That's the thing about Spider-Man. He's a fun character. Their arcs, even when they get dark, even when they get heavy, they're still fun. There's still a lightness to them that mm-hmm. you don't often get. Or that the balance is always off in other books, I think. What's it like for you then to come from loving Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and that being such an influential kind of story in your life, to then getting to reintroduce readers to Pav and to this, like you said, a story that hasn't been seen for almost 20 years and to just get to kind of go wild and put your own stamp on it. I'm not going to lie. The expectation of it was terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you. I feel you. Not just of like anyone else reading it, but like I'm still a reader. I'm still a comic book reader. So like it had to be something that I would read first and foremost. And one of the things that I really loved about the end beats of No Way Home was we get a street level Spidey back. And Mm -hmm. the first half of Homecoming, when he is street level Spidey, that is my favorite Spider-Man. I love writing that Spider-Man. And that's what I decided to do with Pav. I just wanted to root him in his city and sort of make that background, that new setting, just really feel like it's a character as much as he is. What was really fun was I got to write a small introductory like cold open adventure with peter parker and miles morales wow which sets up the book which is like absolute dream come true and then you just root him back in 50101 in that bombay where he is the only spider-man so spider-man india is kind of a weird title (laughs) just saying I did a short backup story in Edge of Spider-Verse last year called Average Reluctant Teenage Superhero, where he basically sort of questions the concept of him being called Spider-Man India. <laughs> it's very good. Go and read it. If this comic book does well, hopefully I'll get to bring him back or someone else will get to bring him back and we can kind of have that conversation about, you know, him being not an Indian Spider-Man, but being the Spider-Man of Earth 50101. But yeah, writing a street level Spidey, I'm going to confess something here. When I was workshopping the idea of what my Spider-Man story was going to be, I workshopped it with a certain Rosie Knight. Oh, it was me! (laughs) Who was very, very helpful, had loads of thoughts. Uh, Nick Marino really helped me out with some thoughts and just helped me frame what I wanted to do because my thing was I want him to be on the ground. I want him to be doing community-based stuff. And that whole thing of like, with great power comes great responsibility is wonderful. It's like, it's obviously set the tone for, you know, all of Spider-Man canon. But the thing that it has the potential to be is feel quite individualistic. Mm. And so when you have a street level hero who stands up for a community, you kind of have to talk about what that community means to him and what he means to that community. And so I, I thought about the idea of this thing called Seva, which is like this Hindu thing of like selfless 
community service, which to me, like when one has great power and great responsibility and one decides to be a masked superhero, they might do selfless community service. Mm -hmm. And so the book's called Seva and it's basically about, you know, it's that classic, why am I doing this storyline, but with some cool fights and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to go back to something you were talking about. You've written in a lot of different kinds of mediums. You've done journalism, you've written novels, you've written criticisms, you've written comic books. How do you, because I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, that listen to this that either want to create something or want to write something, Mm want to, in some fashion, put something in the world that is going to require them asking someone to let them do it. What is your process for pitching something? Like you got to pitch Marvel Comics. How do you go about it? What do you do? You just got to have some famous friends, Jason. (laughs) Right. But before that... The terrible, the terrible truth comes out. That really does help. Let's admit it. Yeah. It does help. I do honestly think that when people pitch, they often pitch the wrong way around. They pitch what they think the magazine or the publisher Mm -hmm. or the comic book editor wants or what they think that the audience wants rather than the story that they want to tell. The very earnest way to say this is you could write anything. You know, we're all in the imagination business. Like we can make anything happen. We can make a meteorite crash towards Earth and the only people who can save humanity are a ragtag group of industrial drillers. Or we can have a boy and a girl falling in and out of love over three years at a prestigious Dublin college. Or we can have humanity try and put itself back together by watching a Shakespeare play following a global pandemic. I don't know, like, you know, we can do absolutely anything. So the thing that you kind of have to do when you're pitching is go, what is my unique take on this world? What is the one thing that I want to say? Because your ideas, your unique perspective, the perspective that you have, that's your currency, ultimately. Those editors at Marvel have seen every single person try and imitate Stan Lee. Yeah, They've seen everyone try and imitate Tom McFarlane. They've seen everyone try and imitate all of the greats. They've seen all of that. So what do you want to say? When I was workshopping, what I wanted to do with Rosie and a bunch of other friends, like the thing that I kept coming back to was, what's the story I want to tell? I want to tell a street level Spidey story. I want to tell a story that's about the pull between hustler culture, individualism and standing up for your community. I want to tell a story that's about gentrification. I want to tell a story about Andrew Tate. (laughs) That got softened a little in the editorial process because it turns out I was trying to say a lot in five issues. (laughs) You know, we can come back to that. So I guess that's my best advice. Before you go out and get yourself a famous friend, work out what you want to say first. (laughs) And when it came to writing this comic, like, was there something process-wise that surprised you? Because you've read comics your whole life, but when you read a book and when you write a book, the thing that you write, your manuscript looks a lot like the published book. When you write a TV show, that is different, but you hear the words that you write on the page and you see the people doing the things you describe. When you write a script for a comic book, it essentially transforms completely when the artist gets their hands on it. So what was the process like of kind of getting comfortable with writing comics? Writing comics and working on TV shows are so collaborative. Mm -hmm. And when you've spent so long being the sole auteur writer, (laughs) writing the literary greats all by yourself, it becomes quite hard to work out the pie chart of collaboration. So working with Abhishek Malsuni on this, who is the artist, and working with the letterers and the inkers and the colorizers, you can tell I've got the technical terms down. (laughs) Everyone's favorite colorizers. Color colorizers. It was really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of collaboration going on, you know, between me and Abhishek and the editors and 
the way that the letterer might put everything in might make you review like whether the panel just says it Mm -hmm. or whether you need the dialogue whether there's dialogue missing whether dialogue just sort of is saying what's already happening in the panel the whole thing is very iterative and it's very flexible and it's very emergent and i really love that like Today I've been working on the script for issue three, which I turned in like back in September. But now that all the artwork's done and it's been inked, there's new stuff that I'm finding Mm -hmm. and there's new stuff that I'm able to kind of push on. And actually having written the script for issue five, like a couple of weeks ago, I now know where this is heading. So I can, you know, this is the midpoint issue. So it is very iterative. But what I'm hoping to do when that first issue drops is go back to the first script that I wrote, the first draft of it, because I started writing the script, not realizing that it would be helpful for me to draw out some pages with some stick figures and all the rest of it. (laughs) And then write the script to that and then hand that script in to the artist and then talk with the artist about what I was hoping for and then give them like a visual palette from which to pull from and all the rest of it. Like, I hope I can show that journey because that journey was really fun for me. Like I've never worked like that before. What did you think of Spider-Man's costume in Across the Spider-Verse? I thought it was great. When it first came out, it looked very specifically like there's a Bollywood actor called Mithun Chakrabarti who in the 80s or 90s, there was a very famous film called Disco Dancer. Oh, I love that movie. I am a disco dancer. It's actually on Netflix. That's how I discovered it. It's great. MIA song Jimmy samples one of the songs in that. I thought the look was very sort of inspired by that era of Bollywood. And it's obviously so different from what I was working with. Yeah. And so it's interesting now sort of seeing what they've done with Pav and also listening to Kemp on the pod last week talk about how the film is basically a warning shot across the bowels of Canon. Yeah. I was watching it going, oh God, do I have to go back to the drawing board? But actually like my path and the path that's in the film, they come from the same essence, but you know, they are different characters. I don't want to ruin it too much, but <laughs> there might be a meeting of minds when it comes to that outfit at some point. Oh, wonderful. I don't want to spoil it too much. I hope my editors at Marvel don't mind me saying that. I think that's a wonderful tease that a lot of people have been wondering about since the film. An absolutely great tease. Yeah. And, you know, for me, Pav's costume in the film is a revelation because my personal theory up until that point was that open top masks don't work. I don't like when the hair comes out the top. Whether it's Hank Pym as Goliath, you could go on and on. The number of times people have tried uh, Hawkeye. I've never seen it work until Pav Across the Spider-Verse. is the first time I was like, that works. That looks good. It's because it's Bollywood hair. Yeah. (laughs) Dream hair. It's almost like, you know, Bollywood is famed for loads of slow motion shots of like people whipping their hair across their across their perfectly chiseled faces. And uh, it just it just made me think when I was watching it, I wonder if they like slowed the frame rate of like the way his hair moves and then put it back up to normal speed, like, almost like time stretching his hair because it looks amazing. I would believe it because I did learn this week, thanks to all the other Hobie Brown fans out there, that they animated... Hobie on that his body was animated on his on the threes but his outlines were always animated on the twos and they had to create uh, an entirely new animation device to do that so, so I think that you're right about the hair I could absolutely see that also what I loved the way that Pav got to be he's like 
the carefree, non-depressed, charming, everything goes right Spider-Man. That feels very different than anything we've seen of any Spider-Man. So did you did you like that kind of reinterpretation? Yeah, I loved it. I'm really glad that he got to be happy-go-lucky mm-hmm. and just seemed like he was having a whale of a time because obviously a lot of the spider society is having a miserable time. <laughs> yeah. I've had loads of messages from people in recent weeks. They know I'm writing a Spider-Man Indian comic book, but I think they sometimes don't know the difference between a comic book and an animated film. Yes. Because <laughs> this isn't a spoiler, but there's a couple of lines in it where he talks about chai tea means TT and, and naan bread means bread bread and stuff. And um, I wrote an essay in a, in a book that sort of blew up in a big way called The Good Immigrant, which sort of pokes fun at all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's not like it's an original thought, like loads <laughs> of people have said it. Loads of people have said it over the years, but it's such a well-worn diaspora complaint that obviously um, it would show up in a Spider-Man. But, like, I've had loads of people go, I oh, love those lines you wrote for that Spider-Man. I was like, no, that, that, that's not, sadly, that's that's not me. You're like, maybe the next movie, maybe maybe in Beyond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, where can people find you? Where can... Uh... Where can people find your stuff? Are, are you posting out there? Where on the internet can people find your material? Yeah, I was, I was, I'm so glad you said on the internet because I was going to say, if if you want to find me at my house, please don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very private person, guys. Um, yeah, I'm at Nikesh Shukla Writer on Instagram. I'm at Nikesh Shukla on Twitter. If that's still a thing by the time this... <laughs> it appears to be still a thing today. Who knows, the tomorrow or in the future? Yeah. Um, and yeah, Spider-Man India issue one is out 14th of June. Um, and I've just, uh, I hope you don't mind me plugging. I've just had a, a new YA book come out called Stand Up, which is a fun, fun, no, little, fun little story about, um, about a young kid who wants to be a stand up comedian and also how you should never meet your heroes because they are always disappointing. Important lessons, important life lessons. <laughs> important life yeah. lessons to bum out all of the teenagers who now are going to listen to this and go, I need a famous friend. And I've written a book <laughs> basically mitigating that, going, don't find a famous friend. They're always, it will be terrible always, to have a famous friend. Be, yeah, it'll be terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, add, add Spider-Man India to your pull list. Who knows, maybe one day we'll just get a main title, Spider-Man, and it will be about Pav. We can dream. Yeah, Pavita Prabhakar's Spider-Man. That's what I want to go for. I think, oh, like Miles Morales. That's really Spider-Man cool. Now. That's yeah, fun. yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I, I, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I love, like, I've always loved your work, Jason and Rosie. Oh, thank you, you are one of my favorite people in the whole world. Oh, uh, thank you so much. So happy you could be here. Yeah, thanks. And so excited for everyone to read this book. Also, the Edge of the Spider-Verse story is like illustrated by non-stop bangers it was nikesh's first ever comic so go out and find an, a copy nikesh's first ever comic and it was like some of the artists who worked on his stories like mark bagley adam Cuba, like only the most famous spider-man artists of all time on his first ever comic i mean adam Cuba has done all of my covers it's <laughs> so absolutely insane. crazy that's like, so insane <laughs> i cannot believe it so please please buy the book this has been so much fun i want to do more and also uh, i'm just putting i'm just going to manifest this now i really want to write a daredevil love it that's the next Ooh, one yeah i love daredevil i feel like daredevil is consistently brilliant yes i, I that is the correct opinion it has for 40 ish years been mostly very 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 good maybe this yeah. okay this is going to be outrageous okay let's take x-men out of the equation 
but maybe the book the, without x-men maybe the single superhero who has the most like iconic runs that you can just bring up because you have oh, like yeah. born again you have the charles saul run uh zadarsky just did a run that's already been seen as like bendis. a modern classic you got yeah. the bendis run uh you got so many different people who've taken on that character and each of those trades people will be buying them for like a really long time i've got them all i've got here i've got like six omnibuses bending the the shelf on my <laughs> my bookshelf. I think it's for this reason. Now that we've been derailed, I'll say this is my theory, and you tell me uh, whether you agree or disagree. It's one Daredevil has been mostly held aside from big events. Mm. He's in his own little world, running street level. He doesn't have to punch Thanos or anything. You know, it's not fucking around with the Beyonder when you know world dimensional uh interactions happen he's really not involved in that he's just like hey i'm keeping the streets of hell's kitchen clean that's it and then two that's the place where they put like the up and coming really really good comics writer often mm-hmm. they'll put mm-hmm. them there and say okay let's see what you got and then they just turn out to always deliver oh sounds sounds yeah. like that would be a good place for you i think you're right jason up and coming new comic writer who needs to show that he let's can deliver go. it's time i'm ready and he do Nikush it Daredevil. he's written I've, I've got my pen he's ready written, <laughs> he's written several uh, several well-regarded novels he's already writing comics but can he do it this time can he do it again can he <laughs> Should he? He's turned, he's turned out an MBE. <laughs> Who is this Who is guy? To be continued. Just just because you said you could write Daredevil, Nikesh, doesn't mean you should. Is <laughs> the, the, the ultimate lesson. Look, call me Marvel. You know where I live. Actually, Marvel, you can come over. <laughs> Marvel's the only people who are allowed <laughs> yeah, to just turn up. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Nikesh. Thank thanks you, so Nikesh. much for having me. Big thank you to Nikesh, and that's it for us. Rosie, any plugs? Yes, you can find me as always, Rosie Marks, on Instagram and Letterboxd. I'm here twice a week, and on Saturday, 10th of June, I will be at Universal City Walk doing a signing for my Godzilla comic with Nick Marino, and we will be at T4, which is Things from Another World, a really fun comic shop owned by Dark Horse Comics. So if you're in the Valley, if you've never come down to the South Bay for any of our signings, you can find us there. Also, if you're in the SGV... You can go to Nostalgic Comics. We did a really fun Spider-Verse-inspired art exhibition, and I did a big piece of Hobie Brown fan art. So Spider-Punk forever. X-Ray Vision is taking a week off for a mini summer vacation. There'll be no episodes next week on either June 14th or 16th. We'll be back rested and ready with more deep dives and theories on June 21st. Subscribe on YouTube so you can keep up with us while you miss us while we're on vacation. You can watch full episodes of the show there. And if you check out our Discord, you can hang out with loads of cool fans who love all the same stuff as you, same stuff as us. And we're there sometimes too. Five-star ratings, five-star reviews. We need them. You got to give them to us. Here's one from Narojo44. Best pod out there. This pod, which has allowed me to fully embrace my inner nerd, has become my favorite to listen to by far. Jason and Rosie seem like genuinely great people. Thank you. Thank you. And they cover all the movies and shows I watch, providing great fan-level deep dives. They've also helped me rediscover my love of comics and graphic novels. I appreciate their suggestions for additional reading, viewing, and listening. Thank you so much, Narojo44. See you next time. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin and executive produced by me, 
Jason Concepcion. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Video production by Delon Villanueva and Rachel Gajewski. Social media by Ewa Okalati and Caroline Dunphy. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. 